We hope you like this Resurrection Oakland Church podcast. Unauthorized use of any part of this copyrighted material for redistribution or duplication is not permitted without prior consent from Resurrection Oakland Church. To learn more about our church and its charity and mission work in and around Oakland, California, please visit our website at www.resoakland.com. reading from the book of James, chapter 4. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You desire but do not have, so you kill. You covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. When you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you think scripture says without reason that he jealously longs for the spirit he has caused to dwell in us? But he gives us more grace. That is why scripture says God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Come near to God, and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up. This is the word of the Lord. Let's take just a moment to pray together. Father, we ask now that you would come and speak to us, whether we are full of joy or full of sorrow, whether we are full of belief or full of doubt, whether we are in this room every week or whether this is our very first time or whether we just can't even believe that we're actually sitting in a Christian worship service. Would you meet us wherever we are this morning Lord, would you help us to be still? Would you help us to hear what you have to say to us? We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. You can take your seats. Uh, We've been working our way through the book of James. And each week I've I've tried to say this. uh, I want this to kind of get deep into your bones. Is that uh, we believe that a Christian is someone who is saved by faith alone. There's there's nothing you can do. This is kind of what sets Christianity apart, actually from other world religions. There's nothing that you can do in and of yourself. You can't be good enough, you can't be religious enough to merit God's love and favor. It comes to you by sheer grace. It comes to you not because of what you do, but because of what Christ has done for you, his finished work, his life, his death, his resurrection. We are saved by faith alone, but faith that saves is never alone. It always leads to a changed life. It always leads to what James calls living faith. And we've been saying every week that there's a big difference between faith that is dead and faith that is alive. See, dead faith, it's just beliefs in your head. You can, you can, you can sing the songs. You can, you can confess the Apostles' Creed. You can know all sorts of right doctrine and theology. But guess what? It makes no difference in your life. It's all up here. James said, says, that's dead faith. 
Faith that is alive is when those truths and the wonder of the gospel and of who God is begins to work itself out into every area of your life. And this is what James has been showing us throughout the book of what living faith looks like. How the gospel changes the way you navigate suffering. And how it shapes you into someone who cares for the poor. And you are deeply concerned with injustice. And how it changes the way that you talk and the words that you use and how you speak to people and how it changes the way that you relate to God's word. Now today, James is going to show us how living faith makes you into a person of humility. Humility, I mean, that's not something we talk a lot about, but it is something that is all over the Bible, and it's actually all over this passage. Look at verse 10. Humble yourself before the Lord. That's how James ends. And then right in the middle, actually, verse 6, God opposes the proud, but shows favor to the humble. I mean, do you hear that? God opposes the proud. That is strong language. You know, life is already hard enough. Can you imagine the God of the universe against you? Like, that is strong, strong language. Think about this. What is the one trait that Jesus commended about himself over all others. He says, come to me, all who are weary, learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart. It's the one trait Jesus actually commends about himself. The one thing that he wants to characterize his followers above everything else is humility. And this is why Augustine, when he was once asked, what is the greatest virtue in the Christian life, he said there are three cardinal virtues in the Christian life. Humility, humility, humility. So let's talk about humility. Special service today, shorter sermon. Good news for you. Four things, four things we're going to look at from this passage. We're going to move, try, to, try to move quickly. We're going to look at humility. What is it? Why do we need it? How do we get it? And where does it lead? All right, what is it? Why do we need it? How do we get it? Where does it leave? So first, what is it? We, 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 need, we need a working definition of humility. I, I love definitions. Uh, I'm actually related to the guy who wrote Webster's Dictionary. My last name is Webster. This is a true story. I never met the dude, so it doesn't really count for anything. But I love words, and I love definitions. And we, we need one. We need a working definition because most of us actually have, uh, have a wrong definition of humility. What do you think of when you think of humility? Who, who is humble to you? You know, maybe you think of someone who just kind of, they tend to just kind of get run over by others. Or someone who is just kind of naturally reserved or passive. Maybe you think of someone who just, they're just, you know, they just have this inward sense of just, they're, they're small. This low self-esteem, this sense of, of self-loathing, now, we just said that, that Jesus is our exemplar of humility. Was Jesus any of those things that I just listed? No. Jesus, he raged. I mean, he overturned 
the, the, the tables in the temple. He challenged the religious and the civil leaders. He stood up to oppression and injustice. And get this, he walked around telling everyone that he was the greatest human being to ever walk the face of the earth, that he was the source of all joy, love, goodness, and beauty, and that people should build their lives around him and worship him. He was not passive. He was not reserved, and he certainly did not have a low view of himself. I want you to hear this this morning. Humility is not self-hatred. The Bible never says, hate yourself and love your neighbor. It says, love your neighbor as yourself, which means that self-hatred is actually no less sinful than hatred of others. It's not a spiritual thing to hate yourself. So if humility is not any of these things, all right, what is it? Well, look at verse 1. Let's get into the text here. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You desire, but do not have, so you kill. You covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God, and when you ask, you do not receive, because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. Now, I want you to hear this. James is talking about your desire, your pleasures, your wants. And you see, what he's saying and what the Bible says is actually the default of the human heart is to elevate our own wants and needs and preferences over the wants and the needs and the preferences of others. It's the default. Have you ever noticed how there's certain words you, you just never have to teach kids? You know, when, when, when little children are learning how to talk, right, you, you teach them words. You're like, say dada, say mama, say ball. You know, there is one word you never have to teach them, and it's the word mine. You know, no parent is like, Say mine. (laughs) Say mine. It just comes naturally. And so does the phrase, me first. And what Martin Luther said is that the human heart is curved in on itself. That what comes naturally to us, what comes naturally to the human heart, is not others before us, but it is us before others. And the Bible calls this pride. The opposite of pride is what we're talking about today, humility. See, pride is when you are focused on yourself, and humility is when you're focused on others. Pride is self-focus, and humility is self-forgetfulness. Or let me say it this way. Humility is not thinking less of yourself. It is thinking of yourself less. And for those of you who are very deep into season two of Ted Lasso, I want you to know that quote does not come from Ted Lasso. You'll find it in season two, episode seven, actually. (laughs) Humility is not thinking less of yourself, but it is thinking of yourself less. That does not come from Ted Lasso. It comes from a paraphrase of C.S. Lewis in his book, Mere Christianity. He has this whole chapter on pride. And at the very end of that chapter, he makes this observation about humility. He says, do not think that if you meet a truly humble person, that they will be what most people think of as humble. 
nowadays. They will not be the sort of person who is always telling you what a nobody they are. Probably all you will think about them is that they seemed a cheerful, intelligent chap who took a real interest in what you said to them. They will not be thinking about humility. They will not be thinking about themselves at all. You hear what he's saying? He's saying when you, when you really encounter a humble person, you don't walk away thinking about how humble they are. You walk away thinking about how interested they seemed in you. Because the essence of humility is not thinking more of yourself, and it's not thinking less of yourself, but it is thinking of yourself less. I saw a story this week about a ninth grade girl in Wisconsin. Her name's Susan Bergman. She runs on her high school cross-country team. Uh, but her story is a little unique, and here's why it's unique. It's unique because she never runs alone. Every race, she pushes her brother Jeffrey, who is one year older than her, and he has cerebral palsy. Can't walk. He's nonverbal. And what she said was, uh, in the story, she said, you know, I wanted to find a sport that Jeffrey and I could participate in together. So every race, she's pushing him in a wheelchair, which outweighs her own body weight. And then the story ended this way. This is my favorite part. It was the last line. It said, at the end of every race, one final act of love when Susan gives Jeffrey the privilege of finishing ahead of her. That is humility, friends. It is not thinking less of yourself. It is thinking of yourself less so that you can think of others more. Who can I serve? Who can I inconvenience myself for? Who can I encourage? Who can I befriend, not because they benefit me <laughs> socially or vocationally, but because I can actually be of benefit to them? Who is hurting? Who is hurting? and needs a kind presence or, or, or just a listening ear. See, that's what humility is. It's not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. Why do we need it? There are many reasons why we need it, but James focuses on one in particular uh, right here in this passage. Look again at verse 1. He starts by asking this question. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Now, James is talking to the church. He's talking to Christians. So newsflash here, if you don't know this, Christians fight. Okay? We're like everybody else. The church is a messy place, and the Bible's very honest about this. And James is talking to Christians in the church, and there's some sort of disagreement and some sort of disunity going on, but James doesn't tell us the details of that. He doesn't tell us the occasion of that. What he tells us is the source of it. He says, don't these quarrels, look at the rest of the verse, don't they come from your desires that battle within you? In other words, their lack of humility, their unwillingness to prioritize the desires and the needs of others over their own is leading to this division, to this disunity, to, to even hatred. And it would be so easy this morning for for me to just kind of focus on the church here. We could certainly take a whole sermon and talk about disagreement and disunity in the church. But I want to expand this for just a moment because we've got a lot of division going on right now in society. In fact, sociologists say we are more divided than we have ever been 
There is more polarization at this moment in history than there has ever been. We have gone from simply disagreeing with people who think differently than us to demonizing them. And the question that everyone is asking is, how do we get along? Can we get along? Is there anything that can break the division and the hatred and the disunity? And James says, what does James say? Yes, humility. Humility. It's not thinking less of yourself. It is thinking of yourself less so that you can think of others more. It is elevating the needs and the interests of others above your own. And I just, I want you to see how opposite this is from what modern culture tells us. Because modern culture says this, anything that asks you to set aside your interest, to renounce your rights, anything that gets in the way of self-actualization or self-fulfillment, anything that hinders you from being your true, authentic self is a form of oppression and that it should be utterly rejected. See, what modern culture does is it says everything is subjected to you, to the individual. We have have made self-focus a virtue. And, And the irony is that at the same time modern culture tells you that, it says that you should care about other people. You should care about the poor. You should care about those who are oppressed. You should fight for justice and equity at all costs. And you should use your power and your privilege, not for your sake, but for the sake of others. Do you see how those two things cannot go together? On the one hand, it says, focus on yourself, put your needs first. And then at the same time, it says, focus on others and put their needs first. Modern culture gives us these high moral goals, but you know what it can't give us? It cannot give us a coherent worldview to actually live those things out. And that's why everyone is struggling with how in the world do we create unity? Do we find peace? James is saying the only way to have these things is when you have something in your life that enables you to say, not my needs over your needs, but your needs over my needs. Not everything is subject to my interest, but everything is subject to my neighbor's interest. See, why do we need humility? We need it because the world cannot live without it. It falls apart without it. There is social decay. It tears at the fabric of society. It tears at the fabric of marriages. It tears at the fabric of all of our relationships. It tears at the fabric of the church. Humility is like, it's like the glue of of social flourishing. We cannot live without it. So how do we get it? Well, 1 Peter 5 says this, clothe yourselves with humility. And I love that image, that humility is like this, it's like a shirt. You you have to put it on every day. You know, your body does not dress itself. You are active in the process. It's a daily habit. 
And what 1 Peter 5 says is the same thing is true with humility. You have to work at it. Mother Teresa once wrote, she said, these are a few ways we can practice humility. To speak as little as possible of one's self. To mind one's own business. Not to want to manage other people's affairs. To avoid gossip. To accept criticism from others cheerfully. To pass over the mistakes of others. To accept insults without retaliation. To accept being slighted, forgotten, and disliked. To be kind and gentle, even under provocation. I mean, no wonder we don't talk about humility a lot. That is hard stuff. And let me just add one more thing to Mother Teresa's list that James actually mentions in verse 2. And it's prayer. You see this little line where he says, you do not have because you do not ask God? He's saying you don't pray. See, how do you cultivate humility in your life? You do it through a life of prayer, actually. Paul Miller, who's a Christian author, he said this. He said, if you are not praying, then you are quietly confident that time, money, and talent are all you need in life. If you are not praying, you are quietly confident that time, money, and talent are all you need in life. See, if if you're not praying, it's a sign that you don't think you need God. You don't think you need his wisdom. You don't need his strength. You don't need his presence. A prayerless life reflects a proud heart. A prayerful life reflects a humble heart. But I I think that the main answer to this question of how we get it actually comes in a very particular type of prayer that James is talking about in this passage. Uh, It's a type of prayer that he refers to really in verses 4 through 10. So you kind of get this whole long chunk here where James... He, he says a lot of things. He talks about friendship with the world versus friendship with God. He talks about submitting to God. He talks about resisting the devil. That's another sermon for another day. Uh, you know, somebody like, is he going to get to that? No, not today. We've talked about that before, another day. James says so much in these, these verses 4 through 10. But there is one thread. There, there is one big idea that brings all of them together. And it's repentance. You know, repentance is the kind of prayer where you come face to face with the depths of your own sin and your own brokenness before God. Look at some of what James says. Verse 4, he says, you adulterous people. See, James is saying sin is spiritual adultery. It's spiritual infidelity. It's, it's, it's cheating on God. It's not just breaking God's rules, but it's breaking God's heart. And then he, in verse 8, he says, wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Sin has left a stain on all of us. James is saying, all of us, if we know ourselves rightly, we are unfit for God's presence. That there's something about us that we know is not Right. We, we, we are in need of cleansing and we are in need of forgiveness. And then look at verse 9. Grieve, mourn, and wail. 
change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. You're like, what in the world is James talking about? He is talking about the prayer of repentance. That when we see our sin for what it is, it grieves us. It it grieves us because it grieves God. And it grieves us because we see how much it it cost God to actually cleanse us and forgive us. See, here's what repentance does. It humbles you. It brings you so low that you can't look down on anyone because you know that you are not better than anyone. And maybe you're thinking, you know, this is strong language. And and actually, I'm not resonating with this because I, I, you know... I'm not perfect. I don't get things always right, but I'm not this bad. I'm a pretty good person. And I just want to tell you, if that is how you see yourself, you cannot be a Christian, or you are not a Christian. You can be. You are not a Christian, and you certainly are not humble. Because if that is how you see yourself... You are constantly looking down on other people who are not as good as you are, who are not as moral as you are, who are not as virtuous virtuous as you are, and you are giving yourself credit for all of those things. Do you know that sociologists have shown us that people who end up in prison tend to have historically hard family situations? That if you have kind of crafted an image in life where you are a pretty good person and a pretty moral person, you actually cannot even just take all the credit for that. See, or maybe you're thinking, you know, okay, repentance, I've heard that word, that's a very, like, religious-y word. Isn't that something that you, like, pray once, like when you first become a Christian? Repentance is the way that you begin a relationship with God. But it is also the way that you grow in a relationship with God. And this is why repentance is not just a prayer that we pray, but it is meant to be the posture in which a Christian lives. J.I. Packer said, Christian growth is always downward. The, The closer you get to Jesus, the more you are growing in your understanding of just how sinful you are, of just how broken you are, of just how unworthy you are, of just how unclean and unfit and unfaithful to God you are. Now, here's the test. Here's the test if you have been paying attention from the start of this sermon today. Because at the very beginning, here's what we said. Humility is not thinking less of yourself, but it is thinking of yourself less And now we're saying, wait a minute, a Christian is someone who has this incredibly low view of themselves. They're unfit. They're unclean. They're unworthy. I mean, isn't that a contradiction? That brings us to the last point of where true gospel humility leads. Where does it lead? James tells us in the very last verse, he says, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. See, repentance humbles you, but the way you know that you're doing it in the way that the Bible talks about and in the way that James talks about is it always lifts you up. 
See, you start low, but it lifts you up. It takes you down, but then it takes you up. It gives you the lowest possible view of yourself, but then it gives you the highest possible view of yourself. And let me show you how this works, okay? There are two ways to repent. There is a religious way, and there's a gospel way. The first takes you down. It just humbles you. But the second takes you down, and then it lifts you up. 2 Corinthians chapter 7 says this. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and no regret. But worldly sorrow brings death. There's two kinds of repentance. Both of them start with sorrow and grieving. See, James says, grieve, mourn, and wail. God grieves our sin, and so are we. Both both ways of repentance start with grieving, but not both end with grieving. There is a way of repentance that starts with grief, and it ends with grief. (laughs) You come in thinking, I'm such a terrible person, and you leave thinking, I am such a terrible person. It it only leads to more misery, more self-loathing, more guilt, more shame. It it, it only leaves you with a, a terribly low view of yourself. But there is another kind of repentance that starts with grief, but it actually leads you to more joy, to more assurance, to more security. It, 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 it leads you to being more lifted up in the end. And I'll give you the best example of this that we see in the Bible. It's Peter and Judas. Matthew's gospel says that both Peter and Judas felt sorrow for their sins. In Matthew chapter 26, after Peter denies Jesus, it says that he went outside and he wept bitterly. See, he's grieving, he's mourning, he's wailing. And in Matthew chapter 27, it says that after Judas betrayed Jesus, that he repented himself. See, but their sorrow took them to very different places. Judas was so overcome by his sin that he hung himself. But Peter, Peter went on on to become one of the most courageous, joy-filled, certain of his status in God's sight, people, in all of the New Testament. And the question is, which are you? Which are you? See, there are three kinds of people. There are those who do not repent. And therefore, they don't see their sin, and they feel neither grief nor joy. But then there are people who repent like Judas. And some of them are very religious. All they see is their sin. They beat themselves up. They just kind of lash themselves with shame and guilt. They feel totally unworthy and wallow in self-pity. See, they feel lots of grief, but they feel no joy. And then there are people who repent like Peter. And people who repent like James is talking about in this passage, they feel both grief and joy. They start with one, but they end with the other. They are humbled because they see their sin, but they are lifted up because they see something else. 
They see what we are invited to see every week at this table. What does this table invite you to see? It invites you to see a great God who became a great servant. Jesus said, I have not come to be served, but I have come to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. And he did not come thinking less of himself, but he came thinking of himself less. He came putting our needs over his own. And you know where it led him? It led him all the way to the cross where he humbled himself. And he went to the lowest possible place. So what? Why did he do it? He did it so that people who are more broken and sinful than we know could be more loved than we know. This is, this is the paradox of Christian humility. The paradox of Christian humility is that it gives you the lowest possible view of yourself and the highest possible view of yourself all at the same time. It's low because this table says that there is nothing you can do to make yourself worthy of God's love. It says that the only thing you can actually bring to this table is your own sin and your own failure. This table says that we are such a mess that Jesus had to die for us. It took nothing less than the Son of God to open the door to salvation. And yet, this table gives you such a high view of yourself because it says you were loved so much that Jesus was glad to die for you. That the God of the universe loves you. That he gave himself for you to wash you and to make you clean and to call you his own and to look at you as if you were his greatest treasure and delight. Now, let me ask you a question. We are looking to all sorts of things to tell us that we matter, to give us some sense of esteem, to give us an identity. And we're looking to careers, and we're looking to our stuff, and we look to relationships, we look to sex and romance, we look to status. We look to all of these things to tell us that we're a somebody. You cannot find anything in this world that will tell you you are more special and more treasured and more delighted in than this gospel that this table proclaims. It takes you all the way up to the highest heights. See? Jesus, here is the Christian gospel, friends. Jesus was humbled so that we could be lifted up. And when we see that, and to the degree that we see that, we will become humble like him. We'll become a servant of others. We'll start living lives where we get low. Not because we think less of ourselves, but because we think of ourselves less. On the night in which he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took bread. And after he'd given thanks, he broke it. 
And he said, this is my body given for you. Eat this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup and he blessed it, saying, this cup is the cup of the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. The apostle Paul tells us that as often as we eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks and praise for this table where you don't just tell us of your love, but you show us that at this table we see all that your son has done for us so that we might be lifted up, so that we could have a status that nothing in this world could give us, so that we could have an identity that nothing in this world could give us, so that we could be more loved than we could ever conceive. Would you give us grace and faith to believe these things today as we eat and drink together? We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.